He opened their minds. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. I'm not sure if you've seen the Citizen Kane of stupid Anchorman films, but the film Anchorman has this one line in it in which the main protagonist says, that is absolutely mind-bottling, to which the other character responds, I think you mean boggling. He says, no, 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 bottling. Like, you shake it up and then it uncorks and it goes everywhere. Jesus opens our minds. And he opens our minds three ways in this passage. One, he answers our doubts. Two, he satisfies our hearts. And third, he heals our wounds. He answers our doubts by talking with us. He satisfies our hearts by eating with us. And he heals our wounds by showing us his wounds. He answers doubts. Now, here's what I want you to think of. There's this film um, called The Stepford Wives, if you've ever seen that one. In the film, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting commentary on patriarchy, and it's uh, about chauvinism and whatnot. But it's, it's actually a deeper psychological read than that, because I don't think it's really just about that. It's not about the war of the sexes. It's actually about relationships in general. In it, there's this little village of Stepford, or this town of Stepford, and the men decide that if only they could chip their wives, then life would go so much better. If you put a chip in, then the women just became, become these very obedient servants, these obedient persons. Jesus does not want to be that in our life. He does not want to be a Stepford God. He wants to be a God that can talk with us. In fact, he wants to be a God who can contradict us. If he only says the things that we want to hear, then he's not really having a dialogue with us. Look at this in verse 38. Why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your heart? Do you have any bread? He's asking questions. He's challenging us. And he wants to have this type of dialogue with us. He wants to answer our doubts. I love the hymn, Thine Be the Glory. It says, lovingly he greets us. He's not arguing with us to, to give us a hard time. He's arguing with us because he's lovingly trying to enter into understanding with us. The hymn goes on to say, no more we doubt the glorious prince of life. And do you hear that? The glorious prince of life. That's not what the NRSV said in the book of Acts, right? It said the author of life. But it's actually the prince of life. You disagreed with me and didn't let me challenge you, so you murdered me, St. Peter says about Jesus. You murdered the glorious prince of life. But he wants to challenge you. He wants to have a, a conversation with you. I know that it's very in vogue to say I'm spiritual but not religious, but it, you can't be spiritual without that relationship, without that challenging. The second thing that Jesus does is that he satisfies our hearts. 
He knows our deepest longings. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said those words at the synagogue of the white there in Capernaum in John chapter 6. He satisfies our hearts by eating with us. You see, that doesn't mean much to us when we say that, you know, someone eats with you, but that's because we're Americans and we're used to fast food. I mean, I wonder what your favorite fast food restaurant is. But you see, Jesus was Mediterranean, and I know that some of y'all in the audience come from a Mediterranean background. And I had the privilege of joining, of not just being brought up in an American home, but I was brought up overseas in Spain. And Mediterraneans, we love to eat. My favorite, one of my favorite restaurants is this little restaurant called Chocolateria San Ginés. It's the chocolate place of Saint Ginés. And it's got these amazing, it only serves three products, churros, porras, and chocolate. That's it. But the churros are not your kind of, you know, Epcot Lake kind of churros that kind of cinnamon sugar cardboard that you get to eat. I mean, it's like dewy, it's like doughy, gooey. That's why it's dewy. Um, that's a neologism right there. Um, but you get to dip that thing in the chocolate and the chocolate is so thick that it stands up on its own if you let go of it. And then you get to eat it. It's, I love that. But that is not just the only reason why I love that restaurant. That restaurant, 120 years ago was home to a whole generation of thinkers and writers and playwrights in downtown Madrid. It was called the generation, they were called the generation of 98. And they were trying to address the, the disparities in Spanish culture where the, the, the people on the left and the people on the right were all fighting with each other. And the, it, was, the, it seemed like politics was descending into anarchy. And you had people like Miguel de Unamuno and Valle they would sit there and they would eat. And you can eat a churro in less than two minutes and walk out. But they would turn breakfast into three-hour ordeals to talk about life. You see, Jesus doesn't just want to share fish with them. He wants to share his life with them. Jesus satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts because he not only wants to share food with us, bread, wine, he wants to share his very self with us. And you can't do that in a fast food meal. And he sits down with his disciples and he sends us out to live and share that very same life with others. What's the application of the second point? Jesus satisfies our hearts so that we can enter into relationship with him and relationship with one another. But the third way in which Jesus opens their minds of those disciples and opens our minds is he does that by showing us his wounds. He heals our wounds by showing us his wounds. Some of you may know the story of Johnny Erickson Tada. She's a Christian woman who was paralyzed from the neck downward um, in an accident when she was 18, diving into the Chesapeake Bay. She misjudged the depth of the water, dove in, and was paralyzed for the rest of her life. And she writes in her autobiography her whole story of struggling with this. She was at a Christian prayer meeting, and she was brought up Episcopalian, um, but she was involved with pe people from a bunch of different denominations, and, and the speaker said, let's kneel and pray. And she was very used to that, having been brought up as Episcopalian, because you kneel, stand, kneel, stand, and all that. 
And then it struck her that she would never, ever be able to kneel again. And then she burst into tears. And then she writes something like this in her autobiography. She says, I remembered the resurrection that just before the party gets going, at the wedding feast of the Lamb in the, in the now and the not yet, the first thing I plan to do on my resurrected legs is drop to my grateful, glorified knees and quietly before the feet of Jesus kneel and then get up and dance. She basically says, can you imagine this kind of hope? What kind of hope does this give to someone with a spinal injury like mine? What kind of hope does it give to someone who's manic depressive? No other worldview promises you new bodies and a new material universe. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do hurting people like me, she goes on to say, find such enormous hope to live. But see, here's what's happening in the passage where Jesus shows his wounds. You see, just three days prior, this is what the disciples were thinking. They, 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 well, 10 days prior, on Palm Sunday, they say, when Jesus is president, I'm going to be in the cabinet. I'm going to ride in on his coattails in Jerusalem. My life is going to be great because Jesus is on his way to the top. But then, those nails. Those nails put an end to all my hopes and all my dreams. Those nails put an end to my aspirations. Right? But Jesus says, no. Those very nails are what saved your life. The thing that you thought actually ruined your life saved your life. The resurrection isn't joy in spite of the sorrow. Jesus says, it's because of your sorrow. The resurrection doesn't just make Jesus forget his suffering. This is how God's salvation works. His resurrection power is available to us. And here's the thing, we read in the lectionary, and, and I, I, I really do love it, but sometimes I wonder why they chop certain verses out. We go, we go to verse 48, it says, and you are my witnesses of this thing. You see, Jesus is dealing practically with all of us. If you look at all of Luke chapter 24, the disciples have encountered the risen Lord, the two strangers on the road to Emmaus, Cleophas and his friend, come back to report to the disciples. And the disciples say, of course, the resurrection is real. And then Jesus shows up, and they still have to think, what is the practical implication of this? Okay, so, so I need to not doubt. Okay, so I need to satisfy the longings of, that Jesus satisfies the longings of my heart. Okay, so, so my wounds are healed, but now I need to go out and do that for the world. You are my witnesses, verse 48. And the lectionary ends there. Well, that's crushing. Verse 49 says this. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father. Remain in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The power of the resurrection. You see, if you're just to be a witness, without the power of the resurrection, it is a burden too big to deal with. 
But Jesus Christ gives us his Holy Spirit that we might bring that healing, that wholeness, that satisfaction, and that faith where there was doubt, faith. Father, we ask that as we come to your table, you would open our eyes. Would you open our minds? Would our minds be just blown away by the power of your goodness? Lord, let words on a page no longer be just that, but would the living incarnate, truly resurrected Christ come to live in us and us in him? And we ask this all in your son's precious name. Amen.